0: So I wanted to take a different approach today on my show and I wanted to talk about philosophy. Yeah, can philosophy be sexy? Mm, I don't know. But this uh, woman, um, I met her a month ago. I had the pleasure of working with uh, Professor Wells from George Washington University. And she is a philosophy teacher. And I wanted to know about philosophy. I wanted to know, you know, what is, you know, what is it? What makes it, you know, so deep? But also, can philosophy be sexy? (laughs) you know, I had to put that in there. So she's going to uh, spend a a few minutes with us and talk about what she does, how she does it, and can philosophy be sexy. But also, we're going to talk about the opera because she has started a group of women who she embraces and shows and teaches us about loving the opera. Now, your girl, I'm not going to lie. I mean, yeah. it's a stretch, but I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to hear it. So, you know, buckle up. We're going to talk about philosophy in the opera. Oh, my God. <laughs> it starts now. Welcome back. We are joined today by Vanessa Wells, Dr. Vanessa Wells. She is a philosophy uh, philosophy uh, teacher at uh, George Washington University. And You know, I I met her uh, doing a photo shoot and I just fell in love with her spirit. And Uh (laughs) I think it's because she teaches philosophy and and I didn't know what philosophy was. So I was, you know, all giddy and trying to find out what it was. And then I looked it up and it says uh, quite literally the term philosophy means love of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, I said, oh, my God you know, wisdom equals getting older, you know, love Mm. means loving yourself, loving the world, whatever. So this is why I have professor,
1: do you want me to call you Dr. Professor or just Vanessa? I mean, you can just call me Vanessa. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Although I love the sound of it, but (laughs) Vanessa is just fine.
0: (laughs) Because I, you know, when when I'm drinking, I call her Nessa. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) So I'll call her Vanessa. Welcome to my podcast. So Thank we you. need to know exactly what you do. Now, you know, you, you know, you, your whole vibe is phenomenal. I love your whole vibe. And for those of us who don't know what philosophy is, I'm going to just throw it out there. Why philosophy?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, philosophy, I philosophy is notoriously difficult to define in a, in a, extremely succinct way um but i I tend to look at it as a a a methodology um what i'm usually trying to help my students develop is a a set of strategies for deciding whether or not any argument is worth accepting um should i believe what i'm being told um what is it that I think about the world how ought I to act and what kinds of questions do I need to ask and answer in order to determine that Mm um and so because philosophy is very much bound up with that practice of uh not only seeking answers but also um develop like figuring out how you even know when you've landed on the right answer, and how you decide what are the what is the set of questions that I'm hoping to answer, and why those questions, right? Um, right. It is. It's. It's something that, at least, certainly in a pedagogical space, um, my students tend to find that they can also take to all of their other pursuits as well and um so even if i have students who aren't philosophy majors Mm -hmm. they often report back to me like oh my goodness you know this class has helped me so much in terms of um becoming a a more kind of rigorous and deep and penetrating uh 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 critic right of 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 reality right or at least what's being presented to me as reality so uh, those are i mean there are some of the reasons and i think that attracted to me to philosophy as well when i was an undergraduate Mm -hmm. um i i knew that as my interests changed over time uh philosophy would be a good home for them because philosophy there's philosophy of science and philosophy of literature and philosophy of history um there's so many different sub-disciplines of philosophy to engage with as well so
0: you know what's so sexy about philosophy is is there something sexy <laughs> about philosophy because you know i always want to have something sexy about this yeah show, so can it be can philosophy be sexy
1: you know, it's such a great question because <laughs> I, and, and, I I I've to confess I just don't know and I, it's <laughs> it's funny I've never I've never thought about that question myself personally and it's interesting I think it's because especially as a teacher I'm usually like uh you, you know in that space I'm presenting in the most like asexual way possible right, right. and um and uh, I mean, I don't. It's yeah, it's funny. I mean, if anything is sexy about philosophy, <laughs> and that's a big if. <laughs> people mostly find philosophers a little bit annoying, which is probably also part of what I find funny about the question. Like, oh my um, god, most people do not love like hanging around with like groups of philosophers.
0: Yeah, cause you're, um. I mean, what you talk about, like, like what is your conversations? Like, you know, oh, I, I, I yeah. think of philosophers like Socrates and Plato and, and Karl Marx. I mean, yeah. and you do not fit that stereotype. I mean, you are drop mm-hmm. dead gorgeous. You Why, know, thank you, you. you just, <laughs> you know, and I look at you and I think, you know, a philosophy uh, professor does not look like you. Mm-hmm. Because if I saw you coming into a classroom and you're just like, you know, I'm a professor. I'm teaching class. I'm like, what, what, really? Right. Where's where, where the craggly old, you know, where, right. whatever, whatever. <laughs> so do you get that from your students? Like when you first walk in the room, you sashay in, you got your stuff, you got your books mm. and stuff. And people are like, who is this who is this chick? And you're sometimes. like, I am your, te- <laughs> your philosophy teacher.
1: <laughs> yeah, sometimes. I get it less and less now. And I think that's, uh, you know, right now I've been at, Uh, George Washington for several years. And so many of my students already know me by reputation, even if they haven't met me before. So I experienced less of that, like, oh, you're the professor? What? Um, But I have experienced that in my career. Um, where, you know, I, I walk up to the front and exactly, there's this sort of like brief confusion. It's, it's interesting. It's, I think that question of like, what does a philosopher look like? First of all, there actually is a blog it's defunct now. Um, but there actually is a blog, uh, and I think it was called like, this is what a philosopher looks like, <laughs> .com, or something like that. Yeah. And it's precisely directed at the, sort of broader stereotypes about what a philosopher would look like, like a, mm-hmm. you know, a, 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 an elderly white man. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Like orating from above somehow. With a bow tie. Um, yeah. Right. Right. With a cute little bow tie, <laughs> you know, looking dapper. Right. Um, and um, or disheveled. Yeah. Exactly. But the question reminds me of this one incident that happened. This was um, years ago and I was in an audience to hear a philosopher speak and the event was not put on by a philosophy department. It was put on by another school. And this was, a, this was not GW, this is a different university. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the host of the event, he, he got up front and he told this little anecdote and he says, oh, you know, I walked over to those two people. He points to two old, elder, older <laughs> white men, right? He points to two older white men and he says, uh, and he says, I walked up to those two and I said, I know you two, you've got to be the philosophers. Now the funny thing is they were, they in fact were members of the philosophy department. Okay. But what I found uh, curious is that I was sitting next to another philosopher who was also a person of color and I'm thinking, well, we're philosophers, you know, like, yeah. why don't we look like philosophers? And right. it's, it kind of goes both ways because A, there's these like broader kind of assumptions about what philosophers look like, professors in general, mm-hmm. but also philosophy itself is overwhelmingly white and male, actually, right? Right. right. Exactly. You know, so that's, so that's a real um and uh that uh you know we as a as a discipline has has been a stubborn problem as well I mean people have been talking about it uh for as long as I've been uh a a philosopher you know and um with with some movement but not nearly enough um but yeah I think it's important to I mean, I think I think it's I think it's important to um, I don't know I wanna like I feel like representation that word gets kind of overused in some ways and mm-hmm. sometimes we put more weight on representation than I think representation alone can actually bear. Right. Um, but I do think that it's you know I like that I can represent philosophy and be like yeah you know like actually philosophers can be um black women uh from philly you know like we, can <laughs> be, we can be literally a philosophy professor exactly um, yeah so it, it, it's important and uh, and um and then there's all sorts of interesting things like one thing and i'll just i'll just end with this for now but um uh i realized some years back my dissertation in grad school was on marxism and ethics and at some point i learned that a number of black philosophy phds so cornell west right um charles mills who uh, recently passed away and he was a philosopher uh very prominent in critical race theory um uh let me see uh tommy shelby who is a professor at harvard um and there's like one or two more it's not an exhaustive list had all written their dissertations on marx and ethics wow. which is a very yeah <laughs> which is wow. this extremely niche kind of question there's not right. it's not like a big school of thought in academic philosophy writing about this stuff so it's there's there's something right that's sort of brought even to the kind of long-standing traditional like canon there's even even aside from the importance of things like philosophy of race that tend to be disproportionately done by black philosophers or feminist philosophy that tends to be disproportionately done by uh, female philosophers there's also like even just when it comes to the sort of old canon or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, there's something about that particular perspective that gives a fresh look at it. And so it's, it's, it's important for all sorts of reasons.
0: So, so do you think that philosophy can help us in these difficult times? Because we are dealing, we're in a, a moment now where, yeah, and I do, I dare say, I mean, I um, you know, personally um, have seen friends they're just dealing with a lot of mental issues and a lot of mm-hmm. mental challenges. And, you know, it's kind of scary that, you know, when you, when you see it, you, you don't recognize it. You know, I asked my, my best friend, um, I saw a friend who was, you know, posting some stuff and I was a little concerned mm-hmm. about this person. And, you know, she said, you know, just let it go, you know, let him or her do what they have to do. And, you know, I want to reach out, but I don't. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, can philosophy help us and them and whoever is listening to this podcast in these difficult times that we're dealing with right now?
1: I think so. Um, I, mean, I think it can I think it can help to detangle problems. I think oftentimes I'm just I'm I'm thinking about I'm thinking about how I Use philosophy in my own life right. when i'm uh you know having some some challenge and also what kind of advice I usually give to others and i think the i think one of the things that philosophers as a whole in general are um are good at is being able to <sighs> separate things that seem like that might look like one thing at first. And then you take a more careful analysis of the situation and you see that actually maybe there are two, three, four, or five different things that all need to be separated out and and thought about. Right. right. You know, maybe, um, maybe I'm having some kind of, conflict with a loved one mm-hmm. and i think to myself well if they act like that it must mean that they don't love me um but then as a wise philosopher <laughs> right you know uh, you know i might really like say well wait a second does it actually mean that is it actually true that the presence of this emotion they've displayed or their utterance of this statement that they've made uh, necessarily entails this much deeper, like existential fact Mm. about their feelings toward me or about the value of their relationship. Right. And I might realize that it doesn't. Um, And then I might be able to ask myself, okay, well, what does it mean then? Right. right? Um, and, you know, those are the kinds of things that I mean, one of the things that I think is very um, significant about philosophy is that a, a lot of the things that we do to try to understand the world or understand um, uh, our place in it or our place in one another's lives is a, it's a, it's a professionalized and, um, uh, honed version of the same kinds of things that all of us do all the time, right. uh, trying to make sense of the world. But the, the question is just, you know, maybe having a, a particularly sharp grasp of formal logic, right, <laughs> which, which comes in handy. Does this actually entail that? No, it doesn't, right? Um, okay, what does it entail? Um, being able to sort of pause and step back, and look at a problem um which is the kind of thing you know that good therapists help you do right um and uh so i think that's one of the i think that's one of the things or one of the ways that sort of having a philosophical frame of mind and having those tools very sharp and ready to hand can be helpful with and you know and i think like when i give advice to friends um that's often what i hear reflected back as the thing that people find helpful as well right so you're um, so you're
0: literally carrying a, like a, a miniature couch with you and and people are lying down to talk with you because you, <laughs> because i i i feel so at ease right now oh good yes yeah, i do like too <laughs> when, when i asked when i asked that question and you kind of put me into a different into a different mindset and yeah. you literally probably like you go to a party. I mean, I can see you now, Vanessa. <laughs> You're at a party, and someone is saying that they had something going on, and you start talking, three drinks in, and you and they're just like, <laughs> "Okay, uh, can I go home with you?" Because you just changed my whole attitude. <laughs> and, and is I, that what philosophers do? I mean, is that what your teachings do? Like, put people in a in a better state of being.
1: I think I I, I never thought about it like that, but. I would um I would I would I definitely would not disagree with that framing cuz mm-hmm. I I think often um we move really fast. Yeah. I mean people in general um we want we we want to um we want to feel like we already have the answer and we want to uh move quickly. And just act on whatever feels like a good enough approximation of the reality of the situation, and um, and and philosophers are what like one of the things I talk about with students in particular is this idea that um, philosophers want to want to know what is absolutely certain and true Mm. (laughs) beyond any possibility of doubt Um, yeah so there's a uh, philosopher named Descartes who and he that's the one who has the famous line I think therefore I am yeah and that that sentence I think therefore I am it comes up in the course of him trying to figure out what is it that he thinks he knows that actually can't be doubted. And he's, and he says, well, you know, I can see my chair and I can see the room I'm in and et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. But then he asks himself, well, how do I know for sure? Couldn't I be under the delusion of an evil demon that wants me to be deceived? And if that's true, if that's a possibility that I can't rule out right off the bat, then what is it that I think I know that would stand up to that kind of challenge? And he concludes, well, the only thing that I could know beyond any doubt is that I am thinking because even if I think that I'm wrong or if I think that I uh, have made a lot of mistakes, I'm still thinking. So that's so that's something I can believe without doubt. And then I go from there and I use that as the sort of foundation of the rest of my body of belief. So that's one example. Um, of what it looks like for philosophers to be asking, well, what is it that I can say that I know with absolute truth and certainty? And uh, now Descartes is just one philosopher among many. I'm not saying, Mm -hmm. you know, that's very far from being everyone's strategy. Um, But interestingly, like in in the Western, like in the Anglophone philosophical tradition, at least, almost everybody reads Descartes when you're a college student and you're learning how to do philosophy. It's one of the first things that everyone is um, introduced to, even though you, know, you might sort of very quickly uh, move on to some other uh, set of ideas, right? And, um, but in general, philosophers are, are trying to figure out what, what is it that I, c- I can say that I know Mm-hmm. um and it's a lot less than we, than most of us probably assume right or somebody like socrates um who um uh, was regarded you know regarded as very wise right but himself said that his wisdom uh consisted in his being aware of how little he knew Ooh. and that's because he was constantly challenging everything um or somebody like Karl Marx writes that uh that his his aim in um the kind of intellectual work that he's doing is to engage in the ruthless criticism of all that exists right so it's this idea of just like this unrelenting um curiosity and um inquisitiveness about the world and wanting to be sure like what is it that we can really know and so a lot of times to bring it back to the question of like personal interactions we might assume we know lots of things about what the other person is thinking what their motivations are why they did it what it means that they were trying to get a rise out of me Mm -hmm. right and but maybe you know you get into your philosophical <laughs> frame of mind <laughs> right and you say do i actually know any of that you know um maybe i'm making a lot of assumptions uh you know what maybe i know some things about what i want though and i know some things about what i'm willing to put up with okay that's a different thing you know so it's like it it is an example of like one of those places where it can be helpful to just kind of like slow down and to um, be willing to uh, have a kind of humility um, about uh, what it is that you might be counting as knowledge. So, now, do actual philosophers, like, are we actually very good at that? You know, like, of course, it varies all the time. There's, you know, but, uh, but I do think that's part of the enterprise is to try
0: Well, I, I, you know, this is a show about um, embracing life, embracing getting older and loving life. And I know um, this is probably going to be my last question, but um, I'm going to bring her back on because she has another thing that I think is so awesome. And I'll tell you as soon as I ask this last question, but Mm -hmm. we're getting older. We're a lot of people that are around us are dying or death or whatever. Mm -hmm. Can philosophy help us prepare for that? Or can that assist us in accepting this person is gone. We're Mm -hmm. going to go, you know, my biggest fear, um, and I'm sure it's, it's a lot of people is, is this the final frontier? Is this Mm -hmm. it? How can philosophy help us with that?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, death is a, um, a consistent theme Mm -hmm. in a lot of philosophical writing. Uh, Just thinking because I just mentioned Socrates, Mm -hmm. I'll just mention that um, he had a theory about about how we gain certain knowledge and he thought it was only in death. Um, So uh, when we're in the world, we're uh, surrounded by all sorts of things that uh, are such as to delude and deceive and that are incomplete and uh but when we die he thought we uh go up to the uh, realm of forms and when we're there we have direct access to the true um conceptual untainted Form of real things. And uh, then we see what a circle really is um, because everything that exists in reality as a concrete circle is actually right. a little bit off, right? You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, But in death, we can we can apprehend the real form of a circle. And then when we come back to the real world, we uh, use that knowledge we gained in death. Right. Um, And are able to say, oh, well, you know, that's not quite a circle, but I I, I know that it is. approaching circularity because i'm i i apprehended the true form of a circle in the realm of forms in the afterlife right um so there's there's um i I think that question of um the of the meaning of life the meaning of death what death is whether there's an afterlife what it means if there is one or isn't one that's Mm -hmm. that is definitely a A kind of constant um uh matter of interest for philosophers um for myself it's yeah it's such an interesting question like does it help with thinking about death I mean I would I would say yes um and I think it um but I'm struggling to uh be very specific i'm trying to think of you know i'm thinking of like recent um i mean i think it i think it helps in the same way in similar ways to what i mentioned a moment ago that um you know being able to have a kind of being able to sort of like step back and see things in their context um but i don't know it's a that's a tough one (laughs) i just lost a cat um Aww. yeah that's the most recent um passing that I experienced. I think it you know I think it I think the main way it helped me in that moment was um th- thinking about what it means to be there for a loved one, like right. in terms of duty, yeah. I think in that moment, I'm not saying that that's uh, one size fits all, but I think in that particular moment, it helps me have um, the sort of strength um, to just uh, do what my cat needed. Um, yeah. And I remembered, um, you know the uh the the vets the veterinarian's office they were uh saying to me my mom was with me too and they were like you guys are wonderful cat parents and you know like you right. did great okay, you're doing so good and and i i know that like lots of people aren't <laughs> right and like <laughs> and don't like treat their animals well and and aren't there with them in their final moments um and i understand that that's because it's hard um and 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 it's not pleasant it's uh you know but i cannot wrap my mind around what it would be like to not do it (laughs) you know like (laughs) and i think and then it's hard to say like well you know i am an ethicist that like within philosophy that's my um specialization and um and it's hard to say which comes first the chicken or the egg like did i become a moral philosopher because i already was the sort of person who who would say well well i don't understand that is the thing that we ought to do so. What right. other considerations could possibly be be at play here? And the um, loss of a pet is
0: just so devastating. It really I was, is.
1: Oh, it's horrible. It's yeah. devastating. Yeah. And I, and and
0: I'm so sorry yeah. about you. You going through that because I I definitely can relate. It's um, that's a very hard pill to swallow.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I I think I think just like having that clarity, um made it a little, you know, made it a little easier, mm-hmm. you know, um, and just being, you know, I don't, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Having that clarity, having that ability to kind of like step back and say, well, um, here are the, here are the various kinds of considerations and here's just what needs to be done. And um, maybe that played a part, but as I say, it's hard to know which comes first. Cause like, I probably also became a philosopher because I already was thinking about those things like I think that I was already thinking philosophically I mean everybody does actually but I think that I was always a little bit more inclined to be like well you know why is this like that or um I remember when I was a child uh thinking to myself, well, we talk about time passing, but how do we know that we're not actually being instantaneously teleported to different like realities? Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I mean we don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean we don't know. I mean right? you, you just don't know. I mean we don't. Exactly. Um there there is a, a another question, but I, I know we all have time, but I want to bring you back because Vanessa started a group of uh, that encourages women to embrace the opera, and um, you know she was telling me about until I, I didn't like musicals, but I know opera is so much different than a musical, and I really want to bring you back to talk about that because a lot of women, I mean, of oh, people, they love opera. Or oh, when they hear the opera, they just think Pavarotti. I mean, and it's so much different. It's so much more vast. And you have you have actually started a group of women that you go to the Kennedy Center, you go to you know the opera house or whatever, and you show them how to embrace it. And you teach them and you listen to, like, what would you like to hear? Or what would you like to learn? And then you base your suggestions based on what they're telling you.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. I... I do, I love opera. And for years, I would just describe myself as uh, an opera. Enthusiast who didn't really know much about opera though. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, like, after a while, after you know, I think at some point I did the math and I realized that I had been going to opera, um, and listening to opera and thinking about opera consistently for a decade and yet still thought of myself <laughs> as, oh, um, wow. you know, oh, I just am sort of interested in it. Um, and, um, and, and the truth is, I'm not an opera expert or anything like that um but i i love opera and Mm -hmm. um i get a lot of enjoyment out of it and i it makes me sad that it does kind of have this reputation for being uh inaccessible yeah. when it's when like actually i think a lot of i think a lot of opera is actually very accessible and i think it's one of the things i really liked about it when i first started going um and the cheapest the cheapest tickets at the metropolitan opera house are like 25 dollars oh, really. yeah yeah, yeah. Oh my god! You know, so there's and and then there's uh opera that's shown um in movie theaters. That is a great experience, and and that's like twenty bucks. You know? Um, oh, that's so, amazing! Yeah. yeah,
0: we're gonna definitely yeah. bring you back for that because you know my my whole misconception of that is like you know I have to dress up. You know, my date has mm-hmm. to wear a tux, and we have to talk like this.
1: Right. You know, well, I'm going
0: to the opera.
1: And you can, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like you can. Um, I'm going to the
0: office to have a rata. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, but and most of my work
1: yeah, and most opera houses are so delighted to have people come that they are not trying to make anybody feel uncomfortable if you show up in jeans, like at all. Oh. Um, I uh, a couple of years ago, the um, the Bavarian State Opera House in Munich, they had this social media campaign, and on their Instagram, they were they were like, "Well, people wonder what should you wear to the opera," and they're like, "We don't care." <laughs> <laughs> they're like, "We." anything just buy a ticket and get over here you know like, and i think that's basically every opera house pretty like uh, i i mean i have gone dressed up to the nines and i've gone in jeans you know it wow. just really doesn't matter just be comfortable well
0: we're going to talk about that uh, when i bring you back but it has been such a pleasure Thank learning, you for talking me. about philosophy with uh, Professor Vanessa Wells um, over at uh, George Washington University, and um, yeah, I you know I couldn't stop the interview. I, I just you mm-hmm. were just so interesting, and it's just it's just refreshing to uh, to feel like I said you literally need to have a small couch with you, and people just sit there and listen to you because you're so easy to what you're putting out. Is what we need to hear.
1: I need like a little salon. Right yeah, you <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. With
1: someone playing harp in the, like, I'm in the, corner. In the background. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so
0: much for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: Hi, this is Juanita. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, Please give it a uh, five stars or a thumbs up. And if you want to be a part of It Starts Now as a guest or as a sponsor, because we would love to have you, please let us know. And we will try to get an episode out once a week. I love doing this. I love spreading the word about what's going on in my life and what's going on with the changes as we get older because it does start now. So like us, love us sponsor us. We would love to have you. Until next week.